Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Bound to Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schraver. With me today is my good old friend, Chris Matz. How you doing, Chris? Hi. Hi, Ryan. I'm good. Thank you. So Chris is new, uh, semi-retired, and so we hear, but he's an agile transformation um, um, coach and lead. So welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So, so Chris, we've gone back. Yeah, yeah, we've gone back. No, we've gone back a bit, and I know that you've been working in agile transformations, you know, 15, 20 years or so. So maybe talk about some of the problems that you encounter and you help um, sort of people solve. Um, so I, I, I was like, I kind of got, fell into agile because it was kind of a way of doing having fun while I was doing work. So I was kind of for the first ten years of my agile experience, I was actually doing agile. You know, that's kind of rare to find these days that people are actually doing agile. Everyone's just being an agile coach or a trainer or something like that, or trying to get a certificate. But I was actually using agile, and it was fun. And I very lucky to be in the extreme Tuesday club. And, you know, it's a great bunch of people who basically every Tuesday would just moan about the world and try and fix it. Um, I, I then became an agile coach and I thought, oh, okay, I've, I've done it. I didn't, wasn't really sure about how to be an agile coach. And I was the agile coach for the product owners in this organization. There's about 200 product owners. And when I got in, they, they were absolutely fantastic. Uh, when, when, when I actually kind of went to them, I was a bit embarrassed because they were so good at the coaching side. I, was, I mean, it's not the coaching side. They're so good at the product side. I was like, you know, what, what can I really help you with? And there's little bits and pieces I could do, and I could help with a bit of scrum and Kanban here around the edges. But they couldn't get stuff shipped. And the problem was that what would happen is these people were brilliant. They really knew what they wanted to do. But if it was something their team could do, that would be great because they'd just get on with it and they'd do it. But if they needed work done by another team, that would be a bit harder. Um, But if it was another team in another division, that would be almost impossible. And so what I discovered is that as an agile coach, it it, it wasn't a case of training the the coach, uh, the the product owners to be better at being product owners. It was about putting a structure in place where the, the product owners could come together and prioritize the organizational level backlog so that they weren't tripping over each other. Because, and, and, and it was really kind of hard problem to see because what was happening, these people were brilliant and they're like, well, this thing I really want to do involves my team, that team, and that team in the other division, but I know they can't do that. So I'll just only solve the problems that I know I can solve rather than I'll solve the problem that I really know I need to solve for my customers. And that's often the problem that we have when we're trying to solve problems. We try and go the solve the problems that we can solve easily rather than taking on those really hard problems that involve kind of, you know, more groups or more people. And so, so that was the thing, that was the first problem I needed to solve, which was how do we get 200 product owners to come together and prioritize the backlog of not what they can build, but what the customers actually want. And uh, yeah, so that, that was... The, the, the kind of like the eyes open moment for me as, a, as an agile coach is often as an agile coach, you're in a very privileged position where you can help them solve problems that they, they really can't invest the time to solve themselves. Yeah. You can kind of see this little problem. Well, interesting. So now, now you got me hooked here. So now the next one is, well, tell us about this approach because it's like herding cats. A lot of times my experience has been getting sort of everybody all moving in direction. So how do you go about like getting, hundreds of product owners all sort of focused in a direction? 
So the, the, the one underrated thing that most people um, really don't give enough credence to is a lot of the time it's down to luck. Yeah. Mm. And I was very lucky that I happened to get into a conversation with the, the, the executive in charge of product, the, the kind of the, the chief product officer, I think you'd call them these days, that kind of person about real options. And we kind of had a little moment, you know, that kind of, what is it they call it in the film, the holiday, uh, the love meet or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, where you kind of go. Ah. Um, <laughs> and so we, we, I kind of started this conversation. We're saying, look, you know, what, what, what can we do to help? And um, what happened was he was like, well, you know, I want to f- solve this problem, but, you know, I don't have time to do it myself as the exec, but I'm hiring someone. And so he hired someone, a brilliant guy. Um, and he was like the, the product management office. Uh, and basically for nine months, we solved every problem for that product management office person. Hmm. And then what they would do is the product organization would come together once a quarter and they'd kind of agree on the priorities. But the priorities were always, well, I'm going to do my thing over here rather than I'm going to do the thing that I really want to do, but because I need some time from you and I don't want to do that because it's just so painful. So for nine months, we sold every problem we could for this person, Guy. He was absolutely ruined, Guy Friedel. Um, and so we, we get to the point where they're having their meeting, where they're all going to get together. And uh, a week before the meeting, Guy just says to me, he goes, Chris, he goes, why don't you come with us to this meeting? You know, so I've been invited there. I'm going to be in the room. It's great. Brilliant. And it was in Eastern Europe in Estonia. And he and literally as we're flying from London to uh, Helsinki on the flight, he said, so what do you think we should do? What were the things that you think we should do to improve things? And I'd got my pitch prepared. Now, by pitch prepared, what I mean is I'd already presented the same idea to five or six other people using pen and paper. So I hadn't got a presentation. It looked so we could have the conversation. And he goes, yeah, that's cool. Let's try that. And that's how we did it. And, and so we talk about, um, so I work with Tony Grout on this as well, who's brilliant beyond belief. And he... Um, he and I came up with this thing, which is in theory of constraints, there's this thing, you know, there's these steps. Step one, uh, identify the constraint. Step two, prioritize at the constraint. Step three, optimize constraint. Step four, add capacity to the constraint. Really simple. We've added a step zero, yeah, which is before you can reveal a problem to someone, they have to have the confidence that you can fix it. You have to start with what are the five things that keep them awake at night? Because the last thing they want you to do is come and give them a sixth one. So those nine months that we did where we did everything, this per- we helped this person in every possible way we could. In effect, it was an audition for him to be able to then say to us, what problem do you think we should solve? So... Rather than as rush in, which I've done subsequently and failed significantly, rather than rush in, we, we by accident, this isn't like some genius plan that we had. This is just things that we've experienced. We built up that confidence by every time that person had got a problem, we fixed it. 
We fixed it. And it was stuff that we didn't think we should be fixing. We fixed the stuff that they wanted, things that they were getting hassled by their boss with, things that were keeping them awake. We knew they were the wrong things, but we fixed them so that when we said to them, and they said to us, hey, what do you think? We were able to tell them, this is the real problem you need to solve. And this is how we think you should fix it. Because they then had the confidence to say, hey, you know what? You guys have fixed every other problem I've, I've kind of come across. Yeah, you can fix this problem. And it seemed a big, audacious problem. And we got in there and that was it. Um, that, that, was the, that was the trick. It was the... And, and it's kind of something that if you if you ever kind of meet with Tony Grout, he'll talk about this all the while. He says, you know, you have to fix the problems that people perceive themselves before you go and give them another problem. Interesting. So we talk about sort of, you know, in discovery, building bridges of empathy uh, to people. So mm-hmm. it sounds like part of what you did is you built that bridge of empathy to, to them and, and help them solve lower level things to get the confidence to tackle oh, no, it. Some of the- some of the problems we were solving were big for them. It wasn't a case of building up to the big problem. Okay. It's a case of, and, and there's an empathy element to it, but we didn't fully have empathy because we were like, you know what, this problem you're trying to ask us to solve, it's the wrong problem, but you know what, we'll solve it. We were solving their problems because as I say, it's more like an audition because it's, it's like, if I come to you with a problem and say, you know what, we have a problem with American politics and you go, but I can't solve that. <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh my God, he's just given me another problem I can't solve. But if I come to you and I've solved all these problems and you're like, wow, you can solve anything. What problem do you think we should solve? I'm like, we're going to fix American politics. Wow, you can do that? Yeah, sure I can. The queen is ready for you guys to come back into the uh, empire. <laughs> well, you said you're semi-retired. Come on over to the U.S. We have plenty of uh, problems. Uh, you like the Pacific Ocean and surfing? Come over to the U.S. and we got plenty of problems to solve over here. And and what I found is subsequently that approach that we developed there, which was you know it, it was amazing the, the, the how successful it was. I've subsequently gone into other places and said this is what you need to do, and it's just gone nowhere. And I've put a huge amount of effort, but partly it's because, you know, they're looking at me going, you're asking me to solve this massive problem. And I don't know if I can solve that. And I don't know anything about you. So, okay, you may have solved it somewhere else, but where I work, this is different. (laughs) People can't solve problems here. Yeah. That's not how things work around here, huh? Yeah. So, uh, hey, so let me ask you, you, you mentioned real options um, mm-hmm. in, in your talk. And that's where I first came across with you. You're the first one that I ever heard the word options uh, come mm-hmm. from. Maybe, maybe can you go on a little bit for our audience, a little bit of, of background on sort of real options and what you mean by that? My, my kind of fun job was doing the agile stuff uh, to begin with. And my day job, I was, uh, I, I built IT systems for trading floors and risk management. So, and the, the area where I kind of focused was derivatives, and in particular, these things, equity options, you know, option to buy a stock. Um, and I got really into it. And you get to a certain level with any of these subjects where you, you just, you, you've got to bite the bullet and do a master's degree. So I bit the bullet, I did a master's degree, and I was like fully immersed in this stuff. Um, and uh, so my day job is building systems for option trading systems and I've got my master's degree in the maths and my fun part of my job was agile and in 2003 I went to the first agile development conference uh, in Salt Lake City Um, 
And one of the talks, someone put this slide up and it was like, here's the risk profile of, an, of a waterfall project. You basically invest all the money and it goes up to the end. And then you only find out where you are at the end. And here's the risk profile of an agile project where you invest a little bit of money and you find out where you are. You invest a little bit of money and you find out where you are. Da, da, da. And this guy with the options at the back of my head was like, that's what we do. That's options. And so it was kind of like Ghostbusters moment where they kind of merged the strings. And I realized, and uh, um, my, my colleague and I, Olav Marson, we wrote an article, which is real options is the underlying principle below all agile practices back in 2006, 2007. And, and what, what, the, one of the problems we have with real options is people go, ah, oh, real options, options, and they immediately go to the financial math stuff I did in my degree, and they find black shoals, and they construct a spreadsheet with this equation in and go, ah, this is what the option's worth. And what we were trying to say to people is, yeah, this, this is a great inspiration. This is a great start. But financial mathematics relies on certain axioms, like what is the price of something? So if you want to know the price of Microsoft shares, or Apple shares or any of these companies, you go on the internet and you can find out the price immediately. And so I say, that's the price. What's the price of giving your friend a hug? What's the friend, what's the price, what's, what's the value of kissing a relative? Or, you know, what's, what's the value of standing in the sunshine and feeling the sunshine through a tree on a dewy morning? Yeah. Not all things that we do can be converted into dollars. And not only that, the value to you is different to the value standing next to you. Yeah. So we can't work out what the price is. But what we can say is it has a value. Giving someone the, the option to give a friend a hug has a value. It's just not a dollar value. Not only that, it's not like financial mathematics where we can agree on the price of Apple. Instead, it's personal and the value to you is not the same as the value next to you. And the value now is not the same as the value yesterday or the value tomorrow. So all we can say is, and what we learn from options is options have value. We're not going to tell you what it is. We don't know what it is, but they have value. The next thing is, and options expire. Yeah. So you've got a wonderful poster on your wall there, you know, what's the, option to see jethro what was it Je jerry garcia band. yeah what's what's, the, yeah, what's the option to see the jerry garcia band worth yeah, yeah. well it's different for you than say perhaps your friends or relatives or whatever yeah. um and so what what we find in the world is that these things options um there's things called commitments and there are some things that are not an option because i'm guessing at the moment that it's not an option to go and see the Jerry Garcia yes, band play. You're correct. You're correct. Hasn't been an option for 25 years. Uh, so yeah, uh, the option to see the band expired 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Until some weird AI thing happens, and then you yeah. can see a virtual one in NFT land. Yeah, and so um, and so we have these options, and what we say is that the, the, these options expire. So the option to see the Jer Jerry Garcia band that actually expired 25 years ago, it's not an option anymore. You know, say, say you've got a friend on the other side of the city and you want to go and visit them. Well, if it takes you an hour to go to get from where you are to where they are and, you know, they're going, they're going out at seven, which is, you know, and that's it. They've got a commitment after seven. Well, your option to see them expires at six. If you don't set off towards them 
at six. And in fact, that's we, we have this thing where people talk about the last responsible moment. Yeah, this is a great one people use. And they go, well, actually, if your friend's leaving at seven and it takes you an hour to get there, the last responsible moment is six o'clock. No, it's not. It's the last irresponsible moment. Yeah. It is the moment at which you have no options. <laughs> yeah. And you're forced to take the only option that yeah. you have left. And not only that, you're going to get there at seven just as your friend is leaving. So you go... Oh. Bye. So why not just do a Zoom call? Um, the alternative is you leave at five and then you've got the option to have an hour with them yeah, before they leave at seven. But the idea is that over time, options disappear. So that's, just, that's, just, that's the second. The third one is never commit early unless you know why. And so this is you shouldn't be making commitments unless you know why. And what it's, it's kind of a get out clause because it's saying because the first one and the third one are really about behavior. They're saying options have value. So don't indiscriminately just go and kill them. Yeah. Don't kill an option. So don't make a firm decision to do something, excluding all options, unless you know why. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a get out clause that we give. But it's about a shift in behavior because what most people do is they'll be on an IT, particularly where we come from in IT projects, people will be on a project and they'll go, hmm. How are we going to install the flux capacitor? And they'll go, hmm, I know, we'll buy a DeLorean. That's it. The only way to get a flux <laughs> capacitor is to buy a DeLorean. Well, there may be many ways to get a flux capacitor, but when you have committed to the idea of using a DeLorean, all the others are left or gone. Yeah. So instead, what we do is we say, right, okay, well, we're not going to commit now. We know that we can get a flux capacitor if we get a DeLorean. Um, but there may be other ways. So let's keep looking for other ways. But we know that we need to commit to the DeLorean if we're going to hit our deadlines. We have to use the DeLorean by, was it midnight? I think it was yeah. in, in, in Somerville. Um, so we have to use the DeLorean. You know, they, they could have had a motor scooter or a motorbike that get to 85, much easier. But the, the, they just, they'd committed on the DeLorean. And this is where these two interact because it's, yeah, you, you've, you don't want to commit too early, but you also appreciate that if you don't do anything, um, the option will expire and you'll lose the option and it, you will be committed to whatever the default path is. Yeah. And then, so then the fourth one, which is, I think it, it's the one that we didn't really go on about too much because it would have just confused the hell out of everyone is options have more, more value when there's uncertainty, yeah? Mm. So the more uncertain things are, the more we value options. And quite often some of these options might be. So in, in a period of stability in the economy where you know you've definitely got a job, you may not value the option to find another job. When you get to a period of uncertainty, all of a sudden you're joining every possible meetup that you can join, you're going to all the conference and getting your CV out there, because you want to have some options because you're looking at your company and going, you know what, I'm not sure if my management are good enough to actually steer us through this crisis. So I'm just going to have a chat with some other people as well. But it's more about uncertainty that drives uh, where the fact that options become more valuable in uncertainty. And, and that, that, that was the four basic ideas. And out of that came a whole bunch of different practices. So, yeah, and the and the in the book too, right? I mean, the yes, illustrated the, novel, the, the graphic yeah. novel, which the I graphic think novel. I, I should have. It's somewhere hiding. Yes, mine's will, up here, hiding somewhere too. You signed it. I still have it. Uh, there you go. 
So there's the graphic novel. Awesome. Which I, I, I do think that for me, this is my favorite page in any book, business book ever, which is, <laughs> can you read what she's saying? It's, it's all, all your fault. Your fault. That's <laughs> How awesome. often do you see that in a business book? That is awesome. And so, you know, speaking of which, so if, if options have more value and uncertainty, options must be super valuable these days. Um, I, w- I, would, I would only think that they're more, more and more valuable these days than they have been in years past. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in the, in the environment. And, but you see, what, what, one of the interesting things that's come for me is um, uh, because of my experiences as an agile coach and the fact that, you know, I was like, yeah, here's a great process. We just do this and improve the organization. What I've discovered is uh, there are two cultures that you find in different organizations. So if we talk about organizations uh, and uncertainty there, there's what I call a risk managed culture which kind of values options and things like that but there's also what i call a failure culture where they don't want change they want things just to be there and they want to be blinkered they don't actually want to see the problems they don't mm-hmm. want to see the options they just want to carry on and hope that if they close their eyes for long enough when they open them everything will be great and donald trump will be gone you know <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let me let me ask you. So, you know, one of the things I took away from options when when sort of we first met, and it got baked into Mobius. I mean, the, the name and stuff all got baked in. And you worked with mm-hmm. every and others. That's where the name came from, and I experienced it. One of the things I work with engineers these days, and one of the things I talk about is sort of options before solutions, and how do you purposely explore multiple options before you land on something? You know, given given the benefit of options, how do you convince an organization to not kind of go with their first thing they come up with or go with the gut? Like, how do you sort of persuade them to explore multiple options, even uh, with different, you know, value and different expirations before they sort of get to, to, to choosing one? So, so and, and that's where these two cultures come in. So in a risk managed culture, which is one where people are managing the risks and they're considering scenarios that they perhaps don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the developer is, um, the developer goes, right, okay, um, we, we, we need a persistence layer. Okay, great. So what are we going to use as a persistence layer? They go, a flat file. And you go, yeah, but what if that's not good enough? It's not fast enough. Uh, then an Oracle database. And what, yeah, but what if that's... And, and eventually they get to the point where they go, you know what, there are these different scenarios, so I'm going to need different options. So perhaps what I'll do is I'll architect and I'll write the code in such a way that there's an abstraction layer. And then if I do need to switch from one to the other. So basically, the I want to have the option if the, deci- the commitment, the decision I made is the wrong one. And yeah, so yeah. I'll create an isolation layer and I'll make sure there's clean interfaces. And, and what you find is that things like Constantine's law of coupling and cohesion drops out the bottom of that way of thinking. Hmm. So, and it's rather than assuming that you're right, you, you, you do what you think is right, but you assume that you're wrong. And so you code it in such a way that you can more easily and more cheaply change it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so really architecture is a hedge for, for, for options. Like, um, in other yeah. words, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about coding, you know, architecture is a, depends on where you come from is either a great word or a dirty word. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I've seen more recently is finally a, a bit of coming back around on architecture because there was a heyday during Agile where there was sort of like, let's just get in there, start coding tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll solve it then. And it sounds like 
your approach is there's a little bit of architecture, whether you call that a little bit of design forethought put put into where you put, you know, areas of abstraction to really shield mm -hmm. the different options you could take from the whole rest of the other system. Um, yeah, and I love the way that Chris Coombe, um, so he was an architect that I work with and who's actually now an, an agile transformation lead. I love the way Chris Coombe kind of thinks about it, which is he says that the architect is, is protecting the organization from the future technology risk. So hmm. making sure that we don't go down any um, architectural dead ends so that we have that option to relatively easily shift from um, one solution to another. And, and I always find it very interesting at the moment because everyone's like, oh yeah, we're going to the cloud. And it's like, what they do is they focus either, you know, I'm on Amazon Web Services or I'm Google Cloud or I'm Apple Cloud or I'm IBM Cloud or I'm Microsoft Cloud. But very rarely do they think, hmm, so what if we wanna move from one cloud provider to another? So how would we architect it differently? Because it's always easier, because normally what it means is that there's a bit of code. Yeah. Rather than your applications talking directly to the third-party code, put a little bit of code in so that you can kind of just change it in that bit and it talks to one versus another. And if you, if you kind of think that way at the front, which is, and I say, it's the, the thinking is, we think this is the right thing, but we're going to assume that we're wrong. If you take that mindset, you always build for those scenarios where you are wrong. And if it turns out you're right, that's great. But if it turns out you're wrong, you're not in a whole load of pain. I like it. Yeah, it's always a balance in architecture between one more layer of abstraction and the complexity to which that int introduces it, right? And then when do you, to your point, when do you introduce that sort of complexity? Yeah. I think that, you know, this is interesting. One of my, my personal careers, I've gotten back into domain-driven design. I picked it up in the early 2000s when sort of Eric came out, and then I sort of dropped it for a bit. And now I'm coming back around to domain-driven design. And, and, and some of that, too, is really a hedge against sort of changes because, you know, a lot of things we design is we model software about how the real world works, which, which changes, but often in more predictable ways versus, you know, not designing the software that deals with, like, you know, the ubiquitous language, the common language of the domain and those sort of things. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing for me is that what you often find is that in, in architecture, there's this, this desire to create a design that's extensible. Yeah. So it, and, and what they're assuming is that they can predict the way that you need the system to change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you add, end up adding extra complexity to the system that does make people trip up and does get harder. Another way of looking at it, and as I say, it's taking that mindset of, we, we, we know that we, we're pretty sure we're right, but let's assume that we're wrong. Then you start saying, well, how do we reduce the cost of change curve? Yeah. Ah, why don't we write some automated tests? Yeah. You know, but then well, because often what you have is there's an area of code and there's only one developer who knows that area of code. Wouldn't it be nice to have the option to have another developer to be able to change that code and know when they've broken something rather than discovering it when it's in production? Yeah, and so you yeah. start to see that, and, and this is this was the article that we that Olav uh, and I wrote, which is TDD is very much a, an option, real option based principles thing, whereas actually creating an extensible design isn't necessarily. But thinking about the things that might go wrong is one thing, and then coding it in a way that it's easy in, to change, but actually designing, assuming it's going to change in that way 
is not necessarily helpful. I love it. Yeah, it's a real connection to sort of TDD is a basically an insulation. I'm not trying to your point predict too much in the future, but if I have a set of automated tests, I can swap things out and it'll tell me whether I, I, I broke things or not. And if yeah. it broke things, I'll know where to go fix it. Yeah, and you've got more options because rather than just having one developer who can work on that code and they know how to step amongst the, mi the minefield and the landmines, anyone can work with it. That, yeah. That's worth. That's a really valuable option, isn't it? And, awesome. and but also having the option to know when they've broken something, and to know immediately rather than waiting until the boss of the company is screaming at them because they've just destroyed, you know, the customer's birthday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or they're like the Facebook engineers recently who ch ch changed the BGP routes and basically brought all of Facebook um, offline. Uh, so yeah, small coding change. Uh, this, by the way, if you want to. If you want a good read, that you should read the post-incident report they posted on Facebook about um, how that all came around. It's a really good read. Oh, brilliant. I, I think a lot of people want to read that report, not because uh, they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. <laughs> perhaps because they want it to happen again. <laughs> yeah, this, this is, this is perhaps, true. Perhaps it would be good just before the election. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we changed the BGP protocols again. Oops, <laughs> that's awesome. So, so who have been? You mentioned a couple of folks along the way. Who have been some of your biggest influences? Is it, is it relates to sort of your approach to problem solving? I have had biggest influence on me, or not necessarily the big names. You know, the thought leaders, because you know they come out with these generic frameworks, whatever. But it's the people who show you how to use them and how to kind of make you know and kind of go, ah, you know that that show you how to do this stuff and work with it. And so you know, Tony Grout obviously is one of them. He's so it's brilliant. Tony's um, uh, huge impact. Uh, Greg Bruffham, um, who wrote the little mini book on, um, on Kenevin. Um, I'd, I'd been aware of Kenevin for a decade, you know, for, you know, and it, he, he was the one who actually kind of sat down and explained how he used it and how, why he used it. And, and that's what helped me get a breakthrough to understand how I could use it rather than just yeah it, it it makes me sound clever at conferences greg was the one who actually showed me how to use it so that you know i would actually use it um and and it's it's people like that a lot of people um lisa long um just the scariest person that i know <laughs> absolutely <laughs> hands down the most intelligent and amazing person that i know um gabrielle benefield I mean, she's just, uh, I've, I've never met anyone who could just breeze through problems and make them disappear. She's just great at just, oh, let's do that. And it's done. And he's like, yeah. So um, you've put me off guard. I, I, if, if, I'd, if I'd come back and had a week to prepare, I'd have given you lots of other names. Um, the one person, there was a moment where I, I was working at Skype and I was working on the metrics hierarchy. It's kind of a, you know, you got, everyone talks about OKRs, but they don't really know how to use them. So OKRs is pretty, what this, I was working with the, the kind of the owner of Skype, um, Mark Gillette, who is utterly brilliant. And we were going through all the metrics and I was just like, you know, they're just metrics, they're just numbers. And we was looking at one and he's like, you know, a, a fraud detection, how, how, what metrics should the fraud detection software have? And he just said, you know what? It's not the number of fraud cases it finds, and it's not the number of uh, 
successful ones that turned out. So we detect what we think is a fraudulent account, and then you investigate. And if it is a, a successful account, what we care about from a customer perspective is how many accounts do we identify as fraud that are not fraud? Because that upsets the customer. We force the customer to jump through. And it was his way of, you know, th this is the guy who's constructing the hierarchy of metrics and he's right down in the detail of the weeds, but his utter focus on customers, was, it, it was just amazing. And that's kind of where I got into OKRs and metrics working with him. And rather than just, oh, it's an OKR metric, it's like, how do you use it? Because as soon as he expressed it like that, I could think, yeah, I can see that the fraud people now have to up their game because it's not just about detecting the fraud. It's also yeah. preventing people from getting pissed off. And yeah. you're like, yeah, I can see how they're going to work with that. Um, so, yeah, Mark Gillette, uh, obviously brilliant. Uh, uh, there's so many people I've worked with. Uh, Alnor Ramji was a CIO when I was at um, Dresna. He, he was just brilliant as well. And he... It's when I look back to what he did, his, his real simple message, he had a very simple message. This is back in 1998. And he said, right, if your project doesn't deliver something useful to your customers in three months, I'm going to take away your budget. <laughs> that was the message. Everyone in the organization, thousands of developers were told, if you didn't ship something, I mean, at the time, if you remember, this is the, the heart of yeah. the waterfall generation, you know, it's like once it, I, 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 we'd ship kind of like 24th of December so that we could enjoy <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> sort of. uh, you know, we'd get right up to the code freeze. But no, he said three months. And I, the, the things that he did, and I, I don't know how studied they were versus kind of uh, just things that he knew to be the right thing. One of the things I saw, this is a person in charge of a department of 1,500 developers and IT people. He interviewed every single person and he tried to put you off. You, he was like the final interview for everyone who joined. Oh, wow. And I had this developer and I, he was brilliant and I fast-tracked him through the process and I said, you've now just got to interview with Elmo. And he said, okay. And he did the interview and I rang him up. I said, how did he go? He goes, the guy's an arsehole. I said, well, he's an absolute arsehole. I said, right, let's get something straight. Yeah. He said, do you know the name of your current CIO? And he went, no. I said, you've had a half an hour interview with our CIO. If you've got a problem, you recognize him. He's met you before. You can walk up to him in the corridor and say, sir, there's something I need to talk to you about. And that's what you can do. And the impact on the culture was incredible really inspiring because you know you couldn't be an arsehole because everyone knew that everyone could just go and speak to the boss because everyone knew what it looked like wow. the next guy basically um uh, uh jp rangaswamy uh five o'clock every night he would finish working in the office he'd go across to the pub opposite and if you needed to speak to him you could just go to the pub that's awesome. so you knew so he'd up the game because he'd actually specified a place where you could go and speak to him if you need to speak to him you need to speak to the boss and that has an impact because people don't do stuff because they know if people don't like what they're doing they can speak to the boss and it has a huge impact on the way people behave that's awesome great influences so so let me wrap it up two two more questions here what are you if you have to think about sort of any kind of lessons learned along your career you'd like to drop on folks? I mean, you dropped some of them already, but what would be maybe just a couple sort of lessons learned as you 
go out to other people who are solving problems. So the, the one thing that I, it, I think the last time I did it was, well, no, I, I still keep doing it. I, I, I'm trying so hard is when you speak to a client or someone you're going to work for, or you're going for a job interview or whatever, you start to think about what you're going to do when you start the company, because you want to be, you know, you want to be hitting the ground day one. You want to be like, you know, ching, 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 like all these people we see on TV, you know, you, you want to be there. And so the one thing is the number of every time I have turned up for a role with a solution without taking the time to properly understand the environment that I'm working in, it has always resulted in a disaster. So anyone who goes out and gets safe training and certification because they think that's what their clients need, they're heading themselves into a disaster. My favorite was, you know, back in the day, 2004, I got about, I'd, I'd worked with Alnor's team at Dresner. Um, I then worked for ThoughtWorks for a year or so. And I thought I was the man. I was like Mr. Business, Agile Business Analysis. Woohoo, look at me. And I got this job as head of PMO. So for credit derivatives at a French bank. And they, um, and I was like, right, I'm going to teach them to be agile business analysts and we are going to be so kick-ass we're going to be so amazing it is going to be glorious and the extreme tuesday club and the silicon valley patterns club and the agile conferences will all bow before my genius <laughs> well it took me three weeks into this kind of like J -j -j -j, we're going to do agile business analysis <laughs> before i discovered that they didn't know how to do business analysis <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but some famous Agile people had really uh, poisoned the well with their behavior at the bank um, by doing stuff that got Agile a really bad name. So I was like, at, at week three, I kind of threw the brakes on. I was like, shit. So the thing I've learned is don't assume you know the answer before you go in, but rather spend a bit of time to get to understand what the real problems are, what people's needs are, what are the solutions that are allowed and possible in their culture? And what are the solutions that aren't allowed and possible in their mm -hmm. culture? But the idea that you can day one hit the, hit you, I, I've always had problems with that. <laughs> and awesome. I still do it. Yeah. I still do it. But it's good, I try it's not to. That's because when you're hired as the expert, people kind of expect, so, hey, what are you doing here? You're going to throw some wisdom on us? Um, but it takes patience, it sounds like. Yeah. And unfortunately, the, the, the problem is that the way that the agile community has kind of evolved over the last 10 years is people have been sold to and kind of uh, kind of told all this stuff. So, you know, now it's a case of people go, well, we want Scrum or we want Kanban, depending on who they've heard. And you go in and go, what do you want? want Scrum or Kanban? And it comes to that point I was saying, the first thing you have to do is you have to solve the problems they've asked you to solve even though they know you're the wrong problems um, before you can actually get to the real problems. Um, and I suppose that's the second thing, which is make sure that even if you think it's the wrong thing, just say, look, I don't think this is the right thing to do. I'm going to do it because you've asked me, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. And then if they say to you, oh, so what do you think we should do? 
okay, well, if we want to have that conversation properly, we can do. But at least you retain the credibility when it all goes yeah. down in flames and you go, <laughs> you thought it was safe. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. That's awesome. Hi, right, Chris. I really enjoyed this conversation. One last uh, major question yep. before, we, before we leave is, what are you listening to these days? I always am very interested in what my guests are listening to, music, podcasts, any sort of thing. Um, so uh, that, that's that's really, you know what, if you'd have asked me that a couple of years ago, I'd have really struggled because I kind of disconnected from the whole music thing I, I, and podcasts are different. I don't really get into podcasts. So actually what I'm listening to is audible a lot. Um, And um, so I've got a dog. He's fantastic. Uh, He's not in here eating anything, which is amazing. Um, And so I take him for a walk about an hour a day. And so I'll just kind of go and just listen to a book on audible. And it's great because it's, you know, it's an hour. You can kind of chill out as you're doing it. The book of the decade is this this is this is the book of the decade I've, okay. I, it was so good that i actually bought a hard copy for um decentola's changed um he do you know nikolai christakis the guy who did the ted talk on how to predict an epidemic using no. uh, networks no. uh, so he, he's basically an, an, an academic um and this guy is one of his phd students and it is brilliant and what you discover is that um uh, the way that real be uh, so it, if you want me to tell you yeah 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 go for just it give you a little insight yeah, yeah 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 so so what he presents is the idea that there are two types of change there are simple changes and there are complex changes yeah uh, a simple change might be to uh, or, sorry simple behaviors and complex behaviors so a simple behavior might be you see something on twitter an interesting meme or a photo of trump doing something disgusting and um you you just retweet it because it's kind of aligned with your behavior and you're like yep yeah, yep yeah, that's that easy yeah um and that's how viruses kind of transmit as well you know there's no thought process the virus just transmits so the 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 viral model of change where as soon as people find out about it and are aware of it it kind of propagates is is for simple ideas when you've got complex ideas like you know how do you go from being a i know a republican voter to a democratic voter or something or how do you go from being a waterfall developer to being an agile developer they're very complex changes and there's kind of often oh you can hear the dog um that they involve some interaction with our identity and what that says is basically the only way those kind of ideas change is um if probably one or two of the people that you know are already like that and advocates for it and as a result you change and the so and the problem with people who promote you know, big ideas out to, um, you know, to some of the groups who, who aren't going to do it is they can actually inoculate them. So if you do, if you're going into an organization that's kind of a little bit anti-agile and you start kind of like getting the, the, the CEO to start banging the drum on TDD and Scrum and Kanban and uh, whatever the scaling framework is that you want to use, um, in actual fact, you can inoculate the people because they get a chance to actually think about it and come up with all the counter arguments. Whereas what you want to do is start small, 
and propagate the ideas that way. And what Damon Santola looks at is what's the typology of your network and the success of your transmission of your ideas is as much to do the shape of the network hmm. than anything else. That's so awesome. It's I'm going to pick it up. Amazing. An amazing book. Yes. I'm going to pick it up. Well, Chris, it's been awesome uh, catching up with you. One of these days, I'll make it back over to London. We'll go have a pint. And, Sounds uh, good to me. And in case uh, you're still in there, if not, you'll be what surfing in the Pacific Ocean uh, somewhere. Well, in the summer, I'll be surfing in the Pacific, but in okay. the winter, I'm always looking for a job. You know, so if anyone's looking for an agile coach or a transformation lead or coach of some kind, ha happy to be there. But as I say, as soon as the water temperature hits a certain level in the Pacific, I'm going to be off surfing. That's awesome. I uh, heard here first, folks. Hi, Chris. So, hey, Chris, have a great day. Uh, take care. Thank you very much, Ryan. Cheers.